Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode six, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 1963 black and white haunted house film, The Haunting. Based on the book The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, it was directed by Robert Wise and written by Nelson Gidding. The film stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin, and Lois Maxwell. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So some of you have probably never even heard of the director Robert Wise, but you definitely know his films. Wise was nominated for Best Editing for his work on Orson Welles' famous film Citizen Kane in 1947, and in 1951, Wise directed the sci-fi classic The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is one of my personal favorites. He also directed the musicals West Side Story in 1961 and The Sound of Music in 1965. He would also be known for directing Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. But let's step back in time a bit and go back to West Side Story. While Wise was working on the production of West Side, he read a review in Time magazine of Shirley Jackson's latest novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which was published in 1959. Wise thought that the book sounded like it would make a good movie, so in Jaws fashion, he bought the rights to the book before he even read it. Oh, <laughs> risk takers. Yes. <laughs> According to George E. Turner, Wise brought the book to his office at the Samuel Goldwyn studio as he was sitting on his couch reading a particularly scary passage. Screenwriter Nelson Gidding rushed into the office with a question. Quote, I jumped about three feet off that couch, unquote. Wise, Wise told Frank Thompson in a 1995 interview. Quote, I said, oh boy, if this thing can do on the screen what it just did to me on the page, we'll have a fine, classy horror picture here, unquote. <laughs> nice. <laughs> can I get that engraved on my tombstone, actually? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a fine, classy horror picture of a life. <laughs> 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 Truly. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So according to John Farr, Wise decided he wanted to make the film as a tribute to his mentor, Val Luton, who produced 1944's Curse of the Cat People, which was Wise's first directorial effort. If you recall, Val Luton produced the original Cat People film, which we talked about. And according to George E. Turner, quote, Wise has commented that there are several buses in the picture, meaning sudden startling intrusions of sights and sounds timed to jar the spectator. The term originated during Val Luton's first production of Cat People. And if you listen to the episode, you can learn more about basically the origin of the jump scare. Okay, so Turner also says, quote, color had become obligatory for major productions, but Wise insisted on filming The Haunting in Panavision black and white and had this condition written into his contract. As he later noted, quote, I felt that the subject lent itself to a wide format and that it had to be in black and white, unquote. Turner continues, although the picture would be filmed entirely in Britain, Wise was adamant about keeping the novel's New England setting. He felt that a haunted house in America would be a bit fresher because there's one around every corner in England. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, writing the screenplay took about six months. During this period, Nelson Gidding worked alone, and although he passed some of his work to Wise to show him that work on the screenplay was progressing well, he and Wise did not otherwise collaborate on the screenplay. And Gidding apparently also visited Jackson a few times to discuss the script. He was very interested in the idea that the hauntings were all in Eleanor's head, in which Jackson replied something along the lines of, 
that's an interesting choice, but it really is a haunted house, too. So, yeah. In regards to casting, Wise chose stage actor Julie Harris to play the nervous and depressed Eleanor Vance, or Eleanor Lance, as she's known in the film. According to Judy Sloan, Harris agreed to do the film in part because the role was complex and the idea of the house taking over Eleanor's mind was interesting, but she also chose it because she had a long-standing interest in parapsychology. That's so cool. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Harris had recently been diagnosed with depression and in a in real life was very distant from the other actors, including Claire Bloom, who plays Theo. On the set, according to John Farr, quote, Wise played the pre-recorded sound effects on the set so that the frightening noises we we heard, like the actors were also experiencing that in the scenes that were shot. Oh, my God. That's why it's so good. Yes, because they're Louise. really hearing all of that banging and all of those, like, whispers and stuff. Ooh. Oh, it's so creepy. It oh, it's like when they did that shot in Alien and, like, none of the actors expected it. And it was so <gasps> genuine. Yes. <Ugh>. So good. <laughs> okay, so there's so much information about the behind the scenes of this film. And I, I just can't really add anymore because we have to get to the discussion but I highly (laughs) encourage you all to read up on the neat stuff that happened behind the scenes okay so according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film the haunting opened in New York and in Los Angeles on September 18th 1963 audiences were frightened by it Film critic Dora Jane Hamblin related how four of her female friends, expecting a ho-hum film, took out makeup during the film's first few minutes with the intention of fixing their faces. The film proved so frightening, she said, that the women were jumping out of their seats and losing their items. Oh my god. (laughs) So despite the majority of audiences loving it, critics at the time were mixed. Many felt that the film was stylish and spooky, but it lacked in its plot, and that there was no point to it which what what boggles my mind but okay whatever i guess people in 1963 hated character studies oh my god what a bunch of freaking wet sandwiches <laughs> seriously so one critic had a particularly terrible experience because her theater was apparently filled with people talking out loud and arguing and then when the film ended the audience resented it because they didn't know what had happened because they missed everything because they were talking <laughs> Oh, my God. That's the worst. I know. That is the worst. Uh, I feel like that's what happened to us when we saw The Witch. Like, there, there oh was, like, God, that couple yeah. that walked out right before the good stuff hit. Oh, my <laughs> God. I was like, you jerks. You missed the best part. Yes, you missed the whole reason for the buildup. You missed the whole point. Oh, my God. Just accost these poor people. (laughs) Well, that's what happened with The Haunting. So many people were just thinking they were going to get, like, a B-movie horror flick. And it ended up being, like, super classy. But... Oh, my God. I know. Okay. So I was able... I was unable to find accurate information on, like, the box office earnings for the film. So I'm not sure how well it did in theaters. But it definitely had a lasting effect on horror and cinema as a whole. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, director Martin Scorsese placed The Haunting first on his list of the 11 scariest films of all time. Richard Johnson, who played Dr. Markway, says that Steven Spielberg considers The Haunting one of the seminal films of his youth. And Robert Wise said that Spielberg told him The Haunting was the scariest film ever made. Wise also stated that out of all of his films, The Haunting is his favorite. Ooh. Yeah. So, according to Elizabeth Mullen, quote, what makes The Haunting work as a horror film is the way it combines image, sound, and cinematic intertextuality, drawing on the spectator's expectations and knowledge of horror film. While Robert Wise's masterful use of music and sound clearly reflects his training as a sound editor, it is only part of the story. What Wise does, however, is use a synesthetic approach in his treatment of image and sound, giving equal semantic semantic rank to each, unquote. So uh, according to film critic James Powers, when the haunting digs into the internals of its story, summons its spirits and lets them play havoc with cold reason, it has a power and fervor unmatched by any film ghost stories. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. 
Eleanor Lance is a 32-year-old virginal neurotic woman who currently sleeps on her sister's couch. She had previously been her mother's sole caretaker, and after years of hearing her mother bang on the wall calling for her, Eleanor decided to willingly ignore her one night. Little did she know that it would be her mother's last. Looking to start a new life for herself, she accepts an invitation to join a parapsychologist and others at the infamous haunted Hill House in New England. Eleanor was invited because, as a younger girl, she encountered a poltergeist. Against her sister's wishes, she takes their shared car and leaves. Once there, she meets Dr. Markway, the parapsychologist, as well as Theodora, Theo, an empath, and Luke, the heir to Hill House. It was an evil house from the beginning, a house that was born bad, says Markway at the beginning of the film. While at Hill House, strange events begin to occur. According to Theo, the house seems to be calling Eleanor, asking her to join it. Eleanor seems to hear voices no one else can hear, and sometimes feels like she is being watched. Doors open and close on their own, Dr. Markway finds a cold spot outside the nursery, and Theo and Nell hear loud banging on the walls late at night. At one point, large white letters written in chalk appear and read, Help Eleanor Come Home, and Eleanor feels someone holding her hand tight while she lies in bed. Eventually, Markway's wife, Grace, who thinks his work with the supernatural is foolish, decides to visit and sleep in the nursery despite warnings from the others. That night, everyone except Grace sleeps in the study and more banging is heard. The door to the study also starts to bend unnaturally, as if something is trying to get in it. The banging sounds start to move, to, start to move closer to the nursery, and Eleanor finds the back door to go check on Grace. When she gets there, Grace is gone. Eleanor begins to unravel as she imagines dancing with the Hill House's original owner, the mad Hugh Crane, and making Hill House her forever home. She climbs to the top of the spiral staircase in the library, and when she gets there, she sees a disheveled Grace appear through a secret door and almost falls. Dr. Markway is disturbed by Eleanor's behavior and asks her to leave. Not wishing to be left out, Eleanor pleads to stay but eventually leaves. As she drives away from Hill House, she struggles to control her car as Grace steps into the road. Eleanor, whether on purpose or accident, swerves her car and hits a tree and dies. Theo exclaims that Eleanor got what she wanted in the end. Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You are welcome. Okay, so the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes a few times, most notably between Theo and Eleanor. Yay! It was so refreshing <laughs> to see two women in a 60s film talk about something other than a man. Heckin' yes! It was so good. Okay. It's so good. So Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes, it was. Yay! Did a woman write, direct, producer, edit the film? No. I mean, it was based on a book written by a woman, but Jackson really wasn't involved at all in writing the screenplay, so No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Well, Theo is coded as queer in the film, and there's also a scene that was deleted from the script with Theo having a fight with her live-in girlfriend. Um, but it was actually cut for whatever reason. And we'll, we'll talk more about Theo in a minute, but I, she was meant to be openly gay in the film. Anyway, let's get into our discussion. Let's start with A House That Kills. So there's this really great essay by architect Keith. I think his last name is Egener. Yeah, that looks right. <laughs> yeah, and he talks about uh, different houses and homes and horror books and films that seem to kill people. Uh, and there's like no like visual evidence of ghosts. So it seems that the house itself is what's evil. And he says, quote, there is within American literature and cinema a subgenre of horror focused on buildings, buildings that are themselves the sources of evil, without ghosts or ghouls, but which, through some flaw of design, manifest a malign awareness that targets occupants. Architectural sentience is at the core of one of the most lauded works of horror fiction ever published, Shirley Jackson's 1959 The Haunting of Hill House. Eighty years of trauma and terror cannot have helped, but from the outset, Clearly, this was architecture gone terribly wrong. Hill House was one very, very badly designed building. 
Jackson wrote often and intelligently about built spaces and their effects. Among her papers at the Library of Congress are sketches and plans she made of her fictional buildings, including Hill House, which she used as aids for plot development, unquote. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so Jackson purposefully designed the house poorly. And of course, they talk about this in the film, too. Hugh Crane, right, the original owner of Hill House, designed the house with, like, no, like, square angles. Like, everything is just completely off, basically. And they explain that he did this because his mind was also off. So he designed it based on the state of his mental health. And uh, Egener goes on and says, quote, like Roderick Usher, born into an ancient and doomed house, Hugh Crane, though building his house anew, might well have been equally doomed, destined to erect a bad house, whatever his intentions, unquote. And then Egner then says, quote, haunted houses of the Hill House sort are houses built for the rich. And as Balzac said, quote, the secret of great fortunes is a crime forgotten. Unquote. And uh, Egener says, commentators have often noted that haunted house stories appeal to us by subverting our ideals of domestic tranquility and security. They are modern versions of the romantic sublime, where we watch in safety while terrible, thrilling things happen close by. Unquote. Yeah, so um, I also want to mention this observation by Elizabeth Mullen. It kind of relates to this. Uh, She says, quote, Upon further consideration, we realize that Hill House's haunted history goes further back than its venerable founder and his ill-fated relatives. We must not forget that Hill House is firmly placed in the granite heart of New England and thus carries within itself the Gothic resonance characterized not only by Hawthorne and Melville, but also by the original European colonists. The strong biblical presence of the patriarchal puritanical crane is brought to the fore in Wise's mise-en-scene. After the accident, in an oppressive low-angle shot, the camera pans from Crane reading from a massive Bible to his grim-faced young daughter, who looks downward out of the frame, then tries to turn away. Crane's hand forces his daughter's attention back to her mother's dead body, revealed as the camera slowly pans backward. In the scene's final frame, the viewer's gaze travels from the outstretched body of Mrs. Crane in an extreme left foreground to Abigail, her unsmiling daughter, resting finally on Crane's large hand clutching the Bible in the upper right corner of the frame, dominating the scene. The hand seems to be pushing her downward with the Bible closer to the dead mother's corpse and thus to her own fate, unquote. So this house is not is built by a puritanical patriarchal man yes. who happens to be super rich, and we don't know how he got rich, right? So the fact that this house is built by maybe this underlying evil in the first place like forget about the mental health part of it with crane like this is a guy who has created a fortune and we have no idea how he created it probably Mm -hmm. from i mean probably from a family who had slaves or i mean this is new england but like he was probably from england like you know, his family probably had slaves or he cheated his way to wealth. Like, who knows how he got his wealth? So already there's evil underlining his wealth. And then the puritanical part, here he is using religion and God to kind of abuse his daughter. Mm-hmm. So we have this, you know, whole idea of faith and religion being abused as well by him. So already... Like, when Markway says this house is born bad, like, that is why it's born bad. Because, like, that is what kills, I guess, the wife in the beginning. You know, like, we think that it starts with the wife, but I think that it starts with Q Crane's intentions from the very start. Like, his whole history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't that the way it goes, though? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. White men just killing everybody in their wake for the sake of their own profit? <laughs> Basically, yeah. And I think it's interesting that he drowns in England. Like, we don't know anything about, like, why he dies in England. Yeah. So he maybe he's a businessman. He's going, like, back and forth. and Maybe. He, he yeah. either got thrown from his ship 
or his ship crashed or something like that. Yeah, because it was a drowning accident. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, what does that mean, you know? Or did one of his servants drown him in his bathtub? You never know. <laughs> oh, no, exactly. So I think it's really, I think that was like a great observation that, like, this is why the house is born bad. Like, like mental health aside, like, this guy had a suspicious fortune and he was super puritanical so yeah it's interesting the other part of that though that i really like is like everybody now i feel like wants an explanation for the supernatural like Mm -hmm. in all these horror movies that are coming out or that have come out in like the last decade there's always like it's it reminds me of scooby-doo like there's Mm. always an explanation or there's always a backstory but part of the really cool thing about horror is that sometimes it just can't be explained, and that's why it's frightening. Well, that's what makes the haunting so scary. Right. Is that we don't know what is going on here. Yes. And I mean, we're going to talk more about that in a second. But like this, the whole idea of this, why this house is haunted, this is all theory. Mm-hmm. There's no real explanation on why this house or how this house is haunted. Yes. And that's why we can talk about it. Otherwise, it's just like, yeah, it was ghosts. The end. You know, like we like, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, there really is no explanation in the book either. Like what is going on? So, yes. okay, so back to like the whole haunted house theory. But I want to say, like, I love the idea of like haunted houses. And we've talked about this before in other episodes, especially, like, the Stephen King films that we cover, like, Mm -hmm. the movies based on his books. Um, My views have changed progressively over the years when it comes to haunted house stories. Like, I didn't used to like them very much because I was like, eh, whatever. But I think as an adult, they become a lot more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes you think of your origins and, like, where you've come from. So... Much like how we talk about the monstrous mother, too. Like, something that is supposed to be so warm and inviting wants to kill you instead. Yeah. And that's so frightening. Like, something interesting has, like, happened to my thought process about all of this, though, because I sat there thinking as I was watching this film, like, you know, as an adult, I totally wouldn't mind being trapped in a house that I really love for all eternity. (laughs) Like. We'll talk about Eleanor's character more in the next topic, but honestly, as an adult, like, a cozy, familiar place doesn't seem that bad to me. (laughs) Right. And I think that's how Eleanor feels about Hill House, but, I mean, especially after being burdened with worry about, like, where the future is going and, like, how do you prepare for what's next and what will my life be like 10 years down the road? Like, I really connected with Eleanor on that level, and I think a lot of adults do as well, because death can be scary, but, like, is it as scary as living in a world where you have no idea what's going to happen next? Like, it's such a conundrum and it's such a trade-off. Yeah, Eleanor, like... Like, she wants this life, and she wants a whole different life, but she has to die in order to, like, find that comfort. Right, and I love that she, like, at first she's, like, not okay with Hill House. Like, she's frightened by it. And then it's not till, like, the very end that she's like, I belong here. So she she is also having a hard time kind of accepting it, too. Um, But, like, Eleanor is essentially homeless, Like, she doesn't have a house or an apartment or even a room or even a bed of her own. Like, she sleeps on her sister's couch in her living room. And I think that is one of the saddest scenes in the film is her arguing with her family. And finally, she tells them to get out of her room. And it's the living room. It's awful. It's like, and there's that, that really ridiculous music playing. Yeah. In the background, which we, we don't know is diegetic until the end. And so it's just like, oh, okay. You know, this is <laughs> Yeah, you're like they're actually what? listening to this music. What the <laughs> fuck? You weirdos. Yeah. Please. And I I think like most of us have been in situations where we've had to live in places where we didn't want to live and like it didn't feel like home. Like I've slept on couches before. Like I like it's awful. Mm-hmm. And um Jill Anderson said, quote, in one way, Hill House seems to be calling Eleanor home. 
into the bosom of the mansion's interior. In another, the demanding voice that requests Eleanor to come home is a comfort to her rejected sense of being. In other words, for Eleanor, arriving at, inhabiting, and encountering the spirits of Hill House become the markers of the beginning of her story, her opportunity to realize a sense of belonging, however fraught or frightening, after years of caring for her demanding, unappreciative, invalid mother, unquote. Um, that's super interesting because it reminds me of when my niece had passed away and we had all of our family come and stay at our house and... Like, my parents' house isn't small by any means, but we had so many people there, and we were all just, like, in each other's space and on top of each other. And I just can't imagine, like, being Eleanor, living with your mother for so long, taking care of her, and then your mother dies, and obviously she's going to be, like, grieving, Mm -hmm. and she is stuck with her... I would say she's kind of abusive, like her sister. Oh, absolutely. She's she's stuck there with her sister and she's got no place to go. So I don't want to say that she did it out of desperation, but I think that when you are just like pushed to a point, you, you will like take any offer and you're like, well, Hill House is like haunted as fuck, but it's better than like sleeping on my sister's couch kind of thing. Like, oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that when you're in the throes of grief like that, all you want is to get out. Like, that's what I remember, too, is just, like, wanting to be out of the house and, like, wanting to be out in the open because there's so much, like, contained in such a small space. And I think also Hill House being so big kind of gave Eleanor a sense of, like, I may be trapped inside, but it's a lot bigger than what I had before. Wow, that's a really great observation. I yeah. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, it go, she goes from this really cramped space that's not her own at all to this amazing, gorgeous, large house that is maybe not so good for her, but in a way it kind of is because for the first time she has space to breathe. Yes. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. Really, yeah, that's a great observation. Thanks. Um, There's also a really good article written by Brian Boylan called I Am Home, The Feminist Implications of Identity Loss in Haunted House Narratives. And it's a really good article. I encourage everybody who is interested in this kind of stuff to read it. Um, But in it, he talks about how when you give something a name, you give it power. And it's a common theme that we see in paranormal stories as well, like the demon gets stronger the more you use its name. And here, the house uses Eleanor's name as if to call her home or make her feelings of wanting to stay there stronger. Like, it uses her own identity against her in order to have a power over her. And similarly, by Theodora calling the house Hill House, like, she's given it an identity and the house comes to life because of its name. And identity is such a powerful factor in this story, like not knowing who you really are or what you want because you've spent so much time away from a true home. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor is a reflection of the home that she grew up in. And now that she's in the clutches of this new environment, you know, it's terrifying. But I think that terror was always kind of a part of her. So it makes sense that Hill House would feel like a safe haven for her. Yeah, and you know, it's actually really interesting that you mentioned identity and knowing what you really want, because that's what Theo says that she's, like, most afraid of, is knowing exactly what she wants. Mm-hmm. And that kind of transitions into our next topic really well, because um, there's a lot of queer coding in that message, especially since Eleanor is the one who asks her, like, what is she most afraid of? Yeah. So let's talk about Theo and queer coding. Uh, according to Michael Koreski, quote, Eleanor reaches a fever pitch of anxiety. The lights come on, the monstrous sounds stop, and Eleanor realizes that Theodora has been across the room in her own bed the whole time. In both film and book, Eleanor cries, God, God, whose hand was I holding? More than just a creepy illustration of the possibly unfriendly supernatural forces at work at Hill House, this moment speaks indirectly to one of the story's central oddities, as puzzled over today as the supernatural ambiguity of Jackson's horror tale, the nature of the relationship between Eleanor and Theodora, unquote. 
Um, so before we continue, Abby, would you please remind all of our listeners what queer coding is and what the Hayes Code is? Yeah, so we've talked about this before, especially in our Dracula's Daughter episode, but queer coding is so common in horror. Here's a brief history of queer coding in film from Control Forever. They say, quote, queer coding is exactly what it claims to be. Coding characters as some variation of not straight or implying characters aren't entirely straight or cisgendered through subtext. Though it's been practiced in European culture as early as the 1800s, queer coding wasn't as frequently or visibly used in America until the 1930s, when the United States attempted to crack down on vulgarity and questionable morals in the entertainment industry. And we talked about the Hayes Code in our episode about the movie Freaks, but here's a refresher on that as well. The Hayes Code was the resulting solution that was firmly implemented in 1934. It was a strict set of motion picture guidelines on what was morally acceptable to be shown on film and what was prohibited. Although LGBT relations weren't renounced, weren't explicitly renounced in the document, the implication of its status as a taboo subject was made clear in the code's call for upholding correct standards of life and the sanctity of the institution of marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And rejecting films in which low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. Yikes on bikes. (laughs) gross okay well gross is right yeah thank you abby okay back to the (laughs) hand-holding so koreski says quote all of their interactions which is theo and eleanor all of their interactions are defined by this kind of push pull love hate fear comfort and the simultaneous desire and repugnance of that hand-holding perfectly stands in for their larger attraction and repulsion Eleanor, meek and single and likely virginal, has spent most of her adult life taking care of her invalid mother, who has just died. Theodora, bohemian and outspoken, functions as a kind of mirror opposite of Eleanor, instantly dazzling and confident. The women will bond and argue and finally reveal mutual loathing over the course of their week-long visit to Hill House. Complicating matters considerably is the matter of Theodora's sexuality. In Jackson's book, there are many small gestures toward the brasher woman's lesbianism. The movie teases those out even further, though in this immediately post-children's hour era, it stops significantly short of clarifying this for its viewers. Theodora's probable homosexuality exists largely as it relates to Eleanor and her demons, unquote. And um, I think it's important to mention that the book and film came out when homosexuality was considered a mental illness. In the first DSM manual published in 1952, homosexuality was called a sociopathic personality disturbance. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And five years later, the film The Haunting came out. It was only slightly improved when the DSM-2 took out of the realm of, like, sociopathy, but they still defined it as a sexual deviance in 1963. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Koreski calls back to when Theo says her greatest fear is knowing what she really wants and also mentions how Theo calls Nell her quote-unquote new companion and is also the only one in the house who calls Eleanor by her nickname Nell. Uh, Koreski says, quote, the haunting addresses homosexuality as it is so long traditionally been in terms of glances and codes. When placed in a horror movie, such suggestions serve to make it seem sinister, unquote. Um, I don't necessarily feel like Theo is sinister, though, like in, in the film. I, I can see how you might think that she is, um, but I feel like she's teasing Eleanor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, I don't feel like her flirting and teasing is predatory. Like, it's definitely predatory in From Hell. Like, they make it seem predatory in From Hell. Yes, yes. Which is super wrong. I personally don't think Theo is sinister really in the film. Like, she's an empath, right? So Mm -hmm. she has ESP. So, like, she knows all of Eleanor's thoughts and feelings. So there are no secrets with Theo, And I feel also like 
were made to feel some sympathy for Theo because Koreski also says, quote, Eleanor, increasingly hysterical, is the opposite of Theo, a mild maiden with talons, crueler in the film even than the book. She lashes out when cornered. At one point, Theodora calls her stupid and innocent, to which she responds, I'd rather be innocent than like you. When Theodora asks her what she means, she responds with not-so-subtle homophobic invective, now who's being stupid and innocent? You know perfectly well what I mean. The world is full of inconsistencies, unnatural things. And like Theo is obviously hurt by this. And we see like she like grabs herself. She like hugs herself like <gasps> like she's really upset. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's important because I think we're meant to to side with Theo in that moment, which is why I feel like she's not very sinister in the film. Like, I I feel like we're meant to sort of be, like, upset with Eleanor and how Eleanor is treating her. At least that's how I'm reading it. Yeah. Um, And, like, the two remain frenemies till the end. Like, even after this huge fight, they, like, sleep near each other in the study, mm-hmm. like, towards the end of the film. And, like, they, like, have this really heartfelt, sad goodbye at the end, right before Eleanor dies. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like in that moment, it's clear that we're supposed to see Eleanor as like somebody who thinks that she is above Theo. And like, I'm wondering, though, if like this is her being super insecure and like she might actually desire Theo and like her sexuality scares her. And so, so. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Eleanor wants to have this home. She wants to have this normal life. And I feel like she feels like being sexually attracted to Theo will ruin that life that she wants, that normal, quote-unquote, normal life that she wants. Yeah, like, she's acting like Theo is getting in the way of her plans. Yeah, absolutely. And even if she doesn't desire Theo sexually, she is looking for something in Theo. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to talk about our next topic now, which is Hill House and the neo-domestic. Um, so this next topic is like it fits in here pretty good because um, neo-domesticity is something that I, I actually didn't know about until I was researching the film. Uh, Jill Anderson mentions Kristen Jacobson, who coined the definition in her essay, The Haunting of Fun Home. And she says, quote, because 19th century domestic fiction emphasizes the struggles of straight, white, Protestant, usually middle class women, neo-domestic fiction articulates the stories of others So we could argue that The Haunting fits into this category perfectly because of its queer coding. Um, But I think it's safe to say, like, I think it's safe to assume that most of Shirley Jackson's stories would actually fit in the neo-domestic category pretty well. Like, even though, like, all of the women and the wives in her stories are white, they are not necessarily normal people, nor do normal events happen to them. Because we know Shirley Jackson made an honest living off of writing domestic essays for like women's magazines. Um, but at the same time, she was somebody who was interested in the occult. <laughs> Amazing. Same, girl. <laughs> yeah, so I'd say that that's pretty other, right? But anyway, neo-domesticity. Now, Anderson is talking about the book in this next section. If you're confused with, like, names and stuff, like, it's because she's talking about the book and there's some name changes. Uh, But I think it still relates a lot to the film. So... Anderson says, quote, because much of Hill House takes place during what we might call leisure time of the inhabitants, Jackson underscores the domestic practices that effectively queer notions of accepted, idolized housework. Even though Eleanor declares herself on vacation, she is actually an active part participant in Dr. Montague, Dr. Markway in the film, supernatural experiment. Her work there consists of being receptive to the possibility of ghostly encounters and in turn recording her observations of the strange occurrences around Hill House. Her work is to be, to exist and observe. But stripped of regular domestic tasks, cooking, cleaning, and caretaking, Theodora and Eleanor develop a fondness for playing listing activities aloud to each other and mocking household duties in the manner of upper-class ladies at leisure. Activities such as tending grapes, searching for gravestones around the estate, and holding picnic lunches by the brook are named but ultimately remain unperformed by the end of the novel. Naming these activities, I would argue, is the women's way of acting as inhabitants of a cohesive household. 
This verbal play is one way they have a life during their time in Hill House. Indeed, the women share many things throughout the novel. Clothing, a bed, secrets, plans for their future, and develop a bond that has been read by many critics as essentially a lesbian relationship, which would certainly upset the conventional life trajectory for women in the mid-century. So obviously, like, the, this whole activity that they're doing in the book is not really in the film, but they do have moments of them just hanging out. Like, their first moment together uh, alone is when they are wandering the house, like, they're looking for a way to get into the parlor or to the, uh, yeah, into the parlor. And they're sort of, like, playing around and talking and, like, listening to the house. And so they're doing, like, like a household activity, right? But it's not normal. It's not domestic. It's neo-domestic because they're looking for ghosts. <laughs> yes. You know, like they're feeling the presence of ghosts. And and then it's not like a man and a woman. It's two women who are doing this mm-hmm. thing together in this house. And then, of course, like Anderson says, like, uh, they do like they do sort of share a bed in the film. It is two twin beds, but they are very, very close together. Um, and like they share like drinks together and they talk and they have nail polish and like you could sort of see this as like friends hanging out, but they really get deep. And especially when Eleanor asks if Theo is married, she has like this knowing glance and she says, no, you know, I love that scene is so great. And so I can see how this sort of proves to be a very neo-domestic film and book. Um, Anderson also mentions Colin Haynes's work entitled Frightened by a Word, Shirley Jackson and the Lesbian Gothic. Colin Haynes notes that lesbianism is as it exists through ghostly presences is reversed in Hill House because the mansion itself emulates heterosexual coitus. So Haynes notes that much of the haunting that occurs in the novel is through Hill House's attempt to make them identify with its normative vision, but also its attempt to dissuade them from identifying in any other way. Perhaps the idea that the house reinforces heteronormativity, the Hugh Crane's patriarchal figurehead still looming over the inhabitants is what makes Theodora and Eleanor's homemaking practices so poignant. The acts of homemaking that occur between these two signal domestic practices that cannot exist in real time. They are fantasy, essentially, and in a realm where keeping time and having a life seem to be valued, unrealizable fantasies are finally useless. Mm. Yeah, so that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about how this house was built by a patriarchal, puritanical, rich white man. You know, and so here are these two women who might have a sexual attraction to each other. And here they are trying to live in his house. Yeah, that's so weird because it's like the house is like, oh, imagine if it could be this way. Just kidding. Like, yeah. So the house is almost rejecting this neo-domesticity that is being produced by these two women. Well, and it's also like the inhabitants are just a reflection of the house. Like, I mean, Theo acts the same way it's she's i don't want to say that she's like teasing eleanor in a in like a predatory way that's not what i mean but she's like planting the seed she's like imagine how it could be and then the house is just like no (laughs) well i think that eleanor she is supposed to be 32 right so she said her mother died uh recently so and then she took care of her, I think, for 11 years. That is her, that is her entire adult life. Like, that is when you really, like, I mean, in the 60s, that's when you get married. That's when you have your, or or that's when you live on your own. That's when you discover yep. yourself sexually. Like, you know, like, I feel like during that time, like, she missed all of that. Yeah. And I mean, and there's a moment where she's, like, Luke says, um, He's like, she probably doesn't even know how to dance. And she goes, I do too. And I'm like, ooh, like that's kind of like what we know about Eleanor's past life. Like she might have been like this fun, outgoing, like girl who went out dancing with friends and boys and stuff and whatever. And she was robbed of this life. And now she's a nervous wreck, you know? Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if like Theo is, whether Eleanor herself is attracted to Theo or not, like Theo is sort of this door to help her kind of explore this life that she has missed out on she never got to explore her sexuality and 
Theo is like this, like I said, like this door to kind of get to that, you know? And so, and I think the house is like, no, like we like virginal, like Eleanor, like, oh yeah. Because she says like, she's like, Hugh Crane, you're like the worst. Like, I hate you and I hope that you rot in hell. And I can't believe you, you gave your daughter these terrible um, books about religion and stuff, right? She says, and she basically mm-hmm. like, curses the house. But then, like a few scenes later, she's like, "You and I killed Grace, like because Grace goes missing, right?" And she thinks that it's her that she did it, right? You and yeah. I killed Grace, and she like talks to Hugh like he's like her husband, you know, and stuff. Yeah. So it's almost like the house is making her want to be more domestic than neo domestic. Oh. Ew. Yeah, so <laughs> it's sort of like sad. Like she wants this normal puritanic like I would say quote unquote normal puritanical uh relationship with a man. But here's yeah. this fun outgoing woman who is like who has ESP, so she's like magical, you know, basically. Yes. Oh my and, god. And um she's rejecting her. So yeah, it's so you kind of think like, oh, Eleanor got what she wanted in the end. It's like, yeah, she did, but it wasn't maybe the best thing for her because she ended up dying. Right, right. <laughs> And she goes with, she lives in the house that's made by the rich white man who's scary. Yeah. So I also want to mention Mrs. Dudley, who is probably the, she res- like she presents domesticity like perfectly in the book mm-hmm. and in the film. Like she's white and she's married and we don't know if she has any children in the film, but Maybe. Who knows? Either way, her job is being a housekeeper and she takes care of Hill House. Right? She cleans it. She cooks breakfast, lunch and dinner for everyone who stays there. Uh, however, she never stays after dark, which is funny because that's when all of like the ghostly activities start. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that hauntings don't have to happen at night. They do because aesthetically it's creepier, I guess. But um, It's pleasing. It's pleasing <laughs> to the eye. <laughs> but... Um, but it doesn't have to happen at night. Like, I just mm-hmm. think it's really interesting that the housekeeper who represents a normal domestic life is sort of keeping the hauntings at bay during the day. Yeah. And Dara Downey sa- thinks that Mrs. Dudley is essential to the function of Hill House and says, quote, with Mrs. Dudley as its agent, everything in Hill House remains in its appointed place and nowhere else, leaving little or no room for alterca- alteration or addition. As a result of this, the malevolence resides in the negative effect that it has on those who themselves pollute it by violating its boundaries. In other words, by adding something that is not proper to it. Ooh. Yeah. So whenever Mrs. Dudley is there in the house, nothing happens. The house is just a house. It's not until the two unwed women, an unwed man, Luke, and married man but missing wife, Dr. Markway, enter and the hauntings occur. So like Theodora and Eleanor disturb it with our neo-domestic practices. And <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the unwed man disturbs it and the wedded man who decided not to bring his wife with him, but is staying in a house with two unwed women, you know, in the 60s. I mean, even in the beginning, the lady who owns it. I know, the lady who owns it is like, that's that's kind of, your wife is going with you, right? (laughs) You know? Yeah. And and no, she isn't at first. You know, so it's, it's interesting that the house sort of wakes up when this neo-domestic, these neo-domestic practices start to occur in the house. And like, you know, when Eleanor gets to the gate, right, she says that she's expected. And Mr. Dudley says that there's no one at that house, no one you want to see. And that could mean the ghosts, of course, but it could also mean Mrs. Dudley. Like, she's there at the house. So what do you mean? Like, I don't want to see your wife, you know? So it's like, like, does Eleanor, like, not want the domesticity that Mrs. Dudley represents? Yeah, he's probably like, get out of here, you floozy. (laughs) Stay away from my wife. <laughs> well, and El- uh, Anderson says, quote, for Eleanor, Hill House is simultaneously a relational transitional space between her old life and 
her mother and sister to a new life on her own or with Theodora and a permanent resting place. When Eleanor, finally at the peak of her instability and madness, realizes she is home at Hill House, that hominess is accompanied by a strange set of practices. She declares that she has flown in and out of windows and has danced with Hugh Crane's statue. She climbs to the tower on her way to the library at night and continues to go Theodora about her future plans. She occupies another liminal space during this time between a hopeful and almost drunk, joyous, almost drunk, joyous, and the terror of knowing that she is becoming even more unstable. These two states of mind coexist in Eleanor, eventually making her unstable to stay at Hill House, but ultimately homeless, incapable of being anywhere at all. Eleanor is haunted by her in-betweenness, and it eventually proves deadly. Yeah, so it is the separation from her familial home and nuclear family that allows Eleanor to escape, which you kind of mentioned earlier, while Mm -hmm. simultaneously destroying her in the end. If Hill House, at least in the beginning, signifies freedom, Eleanor is able to form her own family unit, and it's Dr. Markway and everyone else in the house. And she says, we're a family, greeting one another with easy informality informality and going to the chairs they had used last night at dinner their own places at the table and that's what she says in the book that's sort of like the feeling that we get in the film too like Eleanor sort of sees everyone in the house as her new family I mean she kind of has a crush on Dr. Markway and she almost seems to have a crush on Theo too and I feel like this is her sexuality sort of you know, exploring itself but again this is neo-domestic practices because Dr. Markway is married And she's falling for a married man, which the house doesn't like. And she's also maybe falling for Theo, which the house doesn't like. Mm -hmm. So these are practices that are sort of taboo, right, according to the house. And so that's why it sort of is trying to get her to come to it almost before she becomes, I don't want to say tainted, but but like I said earlier, like she's this virginal woman you know that like could easily become the new wife to Hugh Crane and um, it's almost like the the house is trying to get her to that point you know because when Grace shows up and Grace goes missing she says that she took my place like the house has her yeah. and she took my place so I just think that that's so interesting that like I don't know. Ah, there's just so mu- there's so much to this film that I love, and it's like I can't even get my thoughts like straight because I'm just like, I know. All right, so I think we should mention here that Theo in the film mentions multiple times that her and Eleanor will be like sisters. Okay, so we're going back to maybe they're not like in love. You know, um, there is like some s- lesbian stereotype kink. You know, with the whole sisters thing. Um, but if we want to then look at this with Eleanor, like trying to find a home and a place to belong without the lesbian aspect of it, like this is maybe Theo reading her mind. Like Eleanor has found a home, an unconventional home, where Theo is her new exciting sister who will replace Carrie, her real unattentive, mean and boring sister. Mm-hmm. And I think in this moment, the knowing grin on Theo's face when she says, like, sisters, isn't a flirtation, at least not in this moment, but maybe her acknowledging Eleanor's innocence. Like, she knows that Eleanor just wants to wants a friend, and she wants a sister that she can get along with. And maybe that can be Theo. It's kind of interesting when you think about that, too, because, like, if Theo has this ESP and she can read Eleanor's mind, like, do you think that she knows what's going on with the house as well? Like, she is in a way, kind of, like, working with the house to give it what it wants so that she doesn't become, like, kind of the sacrificial character. Because, like, you can sort of look at Eleanor like um like a virginal sacrifice to the house. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that's Theo's intention. I think, if anything, because Theo knows that the house wants her, and I don't think Theo wants the house to take Eleanor. Because they keep telling Eleanor to leave. They keep saying, like, get out of here. Get out of here. Even Dr. Markway is like, get out of here. Like, this house is not good for you. And it's almost like everyone in the house is telling her, like, like, to run away from this puritanical man who's trying to convert you to be his new ghostly wife. You know? Ugh. Is what I am reading from the film. So, 
Okay. Yeah. So interesting. My yeah. God. There's so much. <laughs> There's so much to think about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I also want to mention again from the article that I mentioned before by Brian Boylan. He says, the ways the house entrap Eleanor are rooted in her role as a woman in patriarchal Western society. Hill House's appropriation of Eleanor's name to control and dominate her is a distorted reflection of marriage. Yes, there you go. Yeah, in which a woman gives up her name and accepts her husband's. In our society, as in the fictional world of Hill House, naming is important. It establishes power hierarchies and forms bonds that are difficult, if not impossible, to break. And in our society, as in Hill House, these bonds can be used to dominate and destroy. By taking the place of Eleanor's mother, Hill House exploits her roles as both daughter and mother. As a good daughter, Eleanor believes that she should stay home with the house, that she belongs with the house. In her relationship with her own mother, however, she was a caring, self-sacrificing maternal figure, taking care of all her mother's needs. This relationship continues into Hill House, as when Eleanor first hears the knocking and wakes up ready to help her mother. Yeah! Hill House uses Eleanor's cultural position as cared for and caregiver as daughter and mother to entrap her. Wife, daughter, mother. Hill House uses these traditional female roles to absorb Eleanor and engulf her identity. According to Luton's, The Haunting of Hill House is a novel about the ways in which people, especially women, are destroyed by the nuclear family, sexual repression, and romantic notions of feminine self-sacrifice. All of these factors are rooted in the cultural tradition that, identif that identifies women with the family and the home. Eleanor is destroyed because she puts her faith in this tradition, in delusions of family. I think if we look at it from this point of view, it's really easy to see why also Eleanor is plagued by her delusions. I want to add really quick that Eleanor hears Abigail crying. Right. And mm -hmm. she's like, well, that's something I cannot stand is hearing a little girl cry. And that's when she like starts talking like she yells, stop it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he, you know, every, everything else was like, OK, I can handle this. But then she hears a, a child crying and the maternal instincts in her are like, I can't handle this. Like, I got to. Yeah. So there you go. Like, there's the house using her, you know, her maternal instincts that she used with her mother, like against her. And, like, trying to get her to come to the house. <gasps> oh. oh, so scary. It's so scary. Okay, and I, that was a great quote from that article, Abby. I think that that's a great transition to our final thought, which is, Eleanor and the house, is it all in her head? Yeah. I think what's really frightening about this particular story is that the lines are really blurred between what is false and what isn't. Like... We never know if it's Eleanor or the house or the ghosts within or, like, a mixture of all three. Like, we were talking about earlier, like, it's just never really explained. And I think that's kind of nice because it leaves it open to interpretation. But it just adds to that, like, chilling haunted house factor. So. Yes. Well, and I love that Jackson was like, hey, yo, this is actually a haunted house. Like, it's not all yeah. in her head. I think that's yes. important. I think that the, the fact that Jackson wrote this with that in mind is super important. Um, and I think it's a mixture of all three. And I also think that we've talked about this before, you know, in our episode about Juwan, especially uh, way back when, um, that houses are like batteries and they are charged by either the really good or really bad events that have occurred in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why time isn't really linear in the house in Juwan. And even though time seems linear in Hill House, we hear the terrible noises of abuse in the past from the crying child, who is probably Abigail. And um, I also think that Eleanor has brought, like, some new energy to the house. And, like, that's that's bad, you know? Yeah. Um, because I think her depression feeds it. And Farron Smith... Ne 
Nemi says, quote, but there is also the possibility that Eleanor, who qualified for this paranormal experiment because of a poltergeist that manifested as stones raining on her mother's house, has brought the evil with her. Screenwriter Nelson Gidding visited Shirley Jackson and eagerly suggested, as Edmund Wilson had with the turn of the screw, that the ghosts were all in the lady character's neurotic mind. Jackson told him that was a nice idea, but this was a ghost story. Jackson believed in spells and vibrations and houses that had personality and preferences about their human residence. <laughs> Events can be read as happening in Eleanor's mind, I suppose, although that leaves all of the things seen by the other characters unexplained. But whether yeah. or not Jackson has merely be- was merely being polite with Gidding when she called his inspiration nice, her idea is better. A haunting is more mysterious than a nervous breakdown, unquote. Yes, yes. That was what I was talking about earlier. Like, yep. uh, not everything can or needs to be explained in my opinion in order to make it a good story like sometimes you just have to take it at face value man (laughs) yeah just enjoy it (laughs) right just enjoy the the haunted ride (laughs) but like i kind of want to add that i think it's interesting that the doorknob in theo's room is the head of medusa Yes. Like she's one of the Gorgon and anyone who looks upon her face turns to stone, right? And Adrian Giacon has has an essay about Medusa and she says, quote, if we think on her myth and her story, we have the main elements that comprise of one, a many snake headed woman, a Gorgon, two, one who can turn others into stone. Three, Perseus is given a shield by Athena and by looking at her reflection, chops off her head. But I wonder if too many look at her from a retrospective lens, rather than an introspective one. As the myth shows, we can only overcome her by looking in the mirror at her, a metaphor for looking inwards. Carl Jung talked about how many of his patients described an octopus-type being, or a Medusa, who effectively turned them to stone, rendering them unable to talk or express themselves. Is she an inner enemy that renders some to feel like they have turned to stone, unquote? And like, you know, yeah. It's kind of interesting that you pointed that out, too, because in this case, Eleanor like I mentioned earlier, she's gone looking for a life, basically, and she meets Theo. And Theo is kind of like her Medusa. And Eleanor's version of turning to stone is killing herself so that she can be stuck like a statue at Hill House. Yes! See? You got it! Yeah. And on that note, I think it's also an interesting analogy when you look at the statues contained within the house. Yes, Abby! Yes! That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking, too! Yes! It's so cool! It is so cool. It's like... Okay, so Elizabeth Mullen says, quote, beyond its ghostly connotations, to haunt means to be continually present in, to pervade, unquote. So Eleanor has brought her own haunting to Hill House. She never wants to leave, right? She wants to become like a stone statue, like the statues that are in the greenery, the green room, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the where all the plants are and stuff. And she wants to live there forever, not necessarily as a ghost, but as someone who has finally found a home in general. And Mullen also says, quote, the fact that Eleanor is mentally vulnerable does not prove that Hill House isn't haunted. As spectators, we are torn between our assessment of Eleanor's mental state and our experience of Hill House through her perspective. Yes. Yeah. So, and like going back to Eleanor being sexually repressed virgin, Uh, Jackson would argue that there is more to it, right? And Laura Miller says, quote, Eleanor's dilemmas are those of a pubescent child, not an adult woman. Sexuality requires an autonomy and self-knowledge that she hasn't got yet. Romance Mm -hmm. rarely figures in the fantasy lives she imagines for herself. Jackson seemed to see sex as an uninteresting distraction from earlier, more fundamental questions of identity, unquote. And Jackson actually wrote about her book, and she said, quote, Then it is fear itself, fear of self, that I am writing about. Fear and guilt and their destruction of identity, unquote. And Miller comments on this and says, quote, This fear of guilt, of being commandeered by another consciousness, and of the destruction of identity is what Eleanor confronts in Hill House. And Eleanor says, I am like a small creature swallowed whole by a monster. 
And the monster feels my tiny little movements inside. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. So Hill House is this monster that is trying to consume her and consume her identity and basically choose an identity for her because she hasn't had the time to sort of decide what she wants. And so what happens is she wants to become stone, right? She be- she wants to become a part of Hill House, which is not only are the stone statues like you mentioned, but it's made of stone. You know, I think that this film is, the story actually is so classic because you can apply it to so many aspects of your life and right now it really resonates with me because it's like we have all of these ideals and all of these buildings and statues and monuments right now that were built on these terrible ideals and notions and it's kind of consumed our country and our culture like all together and it it makes people stay stuck in their old ways yeah like you can't move up you can't move forward there's no mobility there and i think that hill house is kind of a representation of that like it swallows eleanor whole Mm -hmm. like like she says and it's so sad because there's so much potential for a different life for her but she is so consumed by her past and her traumas that she can't move forward and i think We're seeing that a lot now, like in modern times. People aren't addressing traumas from the past or they don't want to acknowledge what happened in the past. So they're just so stuck in their ways. Yeah. And I think so many women are scared to have a life outside of a maternal domestic one. And yeah, yeah. And um, and Eleanor is robbed of that choice. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Just an update on our Patreon. Uh, if you're a new patron, we won't be sending out any gifts until the whole COVID-19 thing blows over, at least for the most part. So please, new patrons, hang tight. I'll make sure to send your gifts soon. However, you can also support the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and that'll take you right to our shop. Oh, and please consider donating what you can to the Black Lives Matter movement as well as to Trans Lifeline. Those links are in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.